The Guardian. Last week, the UK's Joint Committee for Vaccines and Immunisations, the JCVI, recommended that healthy adults under the age of 30 should be offered an alternative to the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, if possible, following growing evidence that the vaccine could be associated with an increased risk of an unusual blood clotting problem. Across Europe, some countries have already decided to give the AstraZeneca jab only to older people, over 60s in Germany and over 55s in France, while in others the use of the vaccine is suspended. If a causal link is established, the risk of death or injury from the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID jab is still extremely low. Of course, even when the chances of an adverse event are tiny, it's important to find out why the vaccine might be causing these problems and if there are any factors that could increase someone's chance of getting them. So today we're asking, what's going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine? It's blood clots in association with severe activation of the clotting system and a fall in platelet count. The risks related to the vaccine are extraordinarily small because they are far, far smaller than the risk you're already facing anyway, just by being a person, being alive and and potentially getting a thrombosis. I'm Nicola Davis. Welcome to Science Weekly. We decided to begin this episode by talking to Dr. Sue Pavard, consultant haematologist at Oxford University Hospitals, who chairs the expert haematology panel that's looking into this issue. I wanted to know more about the clotting problem that's been identified in a small number of those who received the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID jab. Forming a localised blood clot is a normal process to seal off a damaged area of the blood vessel. But when we talk about thrombosis, this is when it has not remained localised, so it's filled the entire blood vessel lumen and blocked the flow of blood. So a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis occurs when a blood clot forms in the venous sinuses or the venous channels of the brain. So there's blockage to the blood draining out of the brain and the swelling and the pressure from this can cause blood to leak into the brain tissues, so what we call a brain hemorrhage. Cerebral vein thrombosis is very rare, but we do see it in patients with infections such as meningitis or patients at risk of blood clots or on the contraceptive pill. But what I want to be clear about is that the cerebral vein thrombosis that we are seeing following COVID-19 vaccination is due to a rare immune reaction. And it's a unique syndrome, not typical of the usual cerebral vein clots that we're familiar with. And this immune complication can affect anybody. We've not identified particular risk factors. And the risk is not increased in those with higher risk of blood clots or on the contraceptive pill. We're monitoring the cases and we're looking for common themes and risk factors. But as yet, we haven't identified any. I asked Dr. Pavard how common this particular syndrome is. Blood clots normally occur in around 1 in 10,000 of the population. And blood clots in the cerebral sinus vein system probably occur in about two per 100,000. But again, what we're seeing here is a unique syndrome. It's blood clots in association with 
severe activation of the clotting system and a fall in platelet count. Researchers are still exploring what is driving this clotting syndrome. However, one possible explanation that has been proposed is that in some people the vaccine could lead to the production of particular antibodies that activate platelets. Platelets are cells that help the blood to clot. As the clot is formed, the platelets are used up, meaning that their levels in the blood fall. Experts have noted a similar situation can, on rare occasions, occur in patients that have been given the blood-thinning drug heparin. Dr. Payford explained why they started monitoring if the syndrome was linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. We started monitoring cases of cerebral vein sinus thrombosis associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine because we started to see this unique syndrome when blood clots occur and there is a fall in platelet count and other signs that the body's blood coagulation pathway is activated. And I also want to be clear that it's not only thrombosis in the cerebral veins that we're seeing. Thrombosis is occurring in unusual sites. So around the liver and the um, the gut vessels, um, in the lungs and in the legs, um, and, and sometimes causing loss of blood supply to the limbs. The expert haematology panel meet every day to discuss cases in the UK and provide support for the clinicians looking after them and help with advice on management. Symptoms associated with blood clots in general include throbbing or cramping pain, swelling, redness and warmth in the leg or arm, or sudden breathlessness, a sharp chest pain and a cough, or coughing up blood. However, in some of those who've experienced the unusual clotting syndrome after having the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, have had clots in the brain called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST. This is very rare, but it brings a different set of symptoms. Most commonly, people will experience headaches, but other symptoms can occur, such as blurred vision, numbness or weakness on one side of the face or limbs, uh, fits or seizures, and sometimes a fall in consciousness. And the headaches are unusually severe and persistent and not responding to normal painkillers. Sometimes there's even a a sort of sudden thunderclap headache. Last week, we heard from both the UK's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency and the European Medicines Agency, who've been investigating a possible link between the Oxford AstraZeneca jab and this unusual clotting syndrome. The MHRA acknowledged a possible link between the jab and the clotting syndrome, although it's not yet conclusively proven, while the EMA said the syndrome should be listed as a possible side effect of the jab. The Joint Committee for Vaccines and Immunisations in the UK then updated their recommendation to say that people under the age of 30 should, if possible, be offered a different COVID vaccine. To find out more about how this recommendation came about, I spoke to Professor Adam Finn. My name's Adam Finn. Uh, I'm Professor of Paediatrics at the University of Bristol and a consultant at Bristol Children's Hospital. Um, I am a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, which advises the UK government, and I'm chair of the World Health Organisation European Region Technical Advisory Group of Experts on Vaccination. I'm also an investigator on several trials and studies of different COVID vaccines, including the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, the, the 
Pfizer vaccine, the Janssen vaccine, and I'm chief investigator of the program on the Valneva vaccine. Sounds like we couldn't have anyone better to come and talk to us about issues around vaccination. Adam, can we start with the processes and procedures in different countries for monitoring side effects from new drugs? So what's the process behind that? Well, I'm most familiar with the process in the UK. The initial step, uh, which is before vaccines get licensed, is that we actively seek information from anyone involved in a pre-licensure study, any kind of medical event. And we even solicit, in other words, we ask them for details of any symptoms they're receiving day on day after they have received a vaccine. After vaccines go into general use, the the approach taken initially is a so-called passive reporting system where doctors and indeed members of the public report any symptoms that they're experiencing having had a drug or a vaccine to the regulator, which is the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority. Um, And if they start to see a signal uh, of something occurring uh, that's unusual or at a particular time after vaccination, then they designate that as being of special interest. And so uh, there's a more active process of looking for um, any information of such cases occurring. And specialists get contacted as well who might be seeing cases of whatever that condition might be. So it switches from being a passive to an active process. There are similar, um, but in some cases, slightly less well-established systems in other European countries. But it's not a global phenomenon. And there is uh, quite a lot of variation, I would say, in the efficiency with which side effects get reported. How do scientists begin to understand whether the cases or the events that are being noticed are actually caused by the vaccine? Because presumably, you know, many things that, that happen after someone's had a vaccine could have happened anyway. That's a really good question. And it's, uh, it's quite a complicated answer. If you've looked at the weekly reports that come out from the MHRA, you'll see that there are literally thousands of events uh, of all sorts of different kinds. Uh, that get reported through the yellow card system. Now, that's reassuring in a way because it means that the system works and people do report things. What you have to do in order to try and decide whether this is uh, just background events that are occurring and nothing to do with the vaccine or something causal is to know something about what those background rates actually are. So things can become, if you like, statistically visible once they start to happen more commonly than you would expect the rest of the time. Uh, And so having good data on what kind of illnesses occur normally is very, very useful. And that's one of the great advantages we have in this country because finally our wonderful National Health Service now does have good electronic databases that we can interrogate uh, and understand what kind of illnesses are happening Uh, most of the time, because people who come into hospital get coded, and and those codes can be looked for. But there are other things that can also draw attention to these kind of events. And and in fact, these recent events with AstraZeneca are a good example of that. The first is that you can see something that's got some features of it that is out of the ordinary. And in this case, we're seeing cases of thrombosis that are very close to the rates that we normally see, but the cases that we normally see are not normally associated with a low platelet count. And so that's what really got us interested 
in seeing whether there was something different going on in this particular case. The other thing, of course, is the timing. And if they cluster around a particular time point related to the vaccine dose, that begins to attract interest. And in this case, these cases seem to be occurring between about four days and about 16 to 20 days after the first dose of this vaccine. So as that clustering starts to happen, combined with this unexpected low platelet count, that's when we began to think that there might really be a signal, even though they were still very rare. It sounds, though, from the work of the MHRA that there is, however, growing evidence that there could indeed be a potential for there to be a causal link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and this clotting problem. And the European Medicines Agency has said that it should be listed as a a rare side effect. So does that mean that that this is caused by the jab or or that we still don't know? Fantastically well-worded question, because of course, what everyone wants is a black and white answer. Uh, And science is very reluctant to deliver black and white answers because we always weigh up the evidence and try to work out whether something is possibly or probably true, rather than giving definitive answers. And I think we're at a a point now where we feel that this is sufficiently likely to be true, that it was the right time to come forward and make that clear, because we wanted people to know about it, particularly because if it's a real thing, and people uh, recognize it and treat it promptly, we can avoid people getting seriously ill or dying. So really important to share that information. But equally, we didn't want to come forward and scare everyone to death about something that really wasn't, wasn't the case. So I think we've got to a point now where on the balance of probability, it is likely to turn out to be a real side effect. Let's talk a bit about risk, because risk is really the centre of the concerns that people have here and at the heart of of the recommendations the JCVI have given. So what is the risk of having this blood clotting event after the AstraZeneca jab? And and does that vary between different demographics or age or anything like that? The present numbers that we've got suggest that the risk is about four in a million of getting this problem and about one in a million of dying of it. Of course, the death rates may go down as these diagnoses get made more promptly and people get treatment, but that's the risk sort of historically while over the period while this was emerging. That, that is of obviously a very low risk, although people find it quite difficult to compute risk, particularly when it's a scary sounding thing like this. I mean, this is a serious illness that up until now at least has been killing around 25% of the people who've got it. Uh, But we obviously see much higher levels of risk of serious side effects than that with many other drugs that people receive. What makes this difficult to compute and to make decisions around is the balance against the the benefit, or in other words, the, the prevention of the likelihood of dying or being seriously ill that you're getting by being immunized. And that's fluctuating as the number of cases uh, of COVID goes up and down. With regard to age, because the numbers are so small, it's quite difficult to be confident whether the risk of the side effect is varying with age. But the trend suggests that it is slightly higher in younger people than it is in older people. I guess our level of confidence about that is still quite low, 
But that's the suggestion from the very small numbers of cases we've seen. But on the benefit side, it's really clear. In other words, the risks of getting sick, getting blood clots or dying of COVID go up very rapidly as you get older uh, and are very significant even over the age of 30. So it's only really in those very young people that there begins to be a slight question mark of the risk-benefit balance of having the vaccine, at least at the moment when we're seeing very low numbers of cases of COVID occurring. Once they start to rack up, and we're all predicting that that will actually happen as the opening up continues, then it actually becomes uh, more obviously beneficial to receive the vaccine, even if you're a person in your 20s. The risk to young people, particularly of the AstraZeneca jab, as you said, it's, it's very low, but the JCVI, which of course you're a member of, has recommended that people aged 18 to 29 should be offered a, a different COVID vaccine if available, provided they are healthy and at low risk of COVID, we should, we should stress. Just talk me through why the JCVI decided to make that particular recommendation. Why the cutoff at 30? We were shown some very clear data that had been prepared by Public Health England that uh, computed the risks that people face from COVID, the risks of dying, the risks of being uh, seriously ill, hospitalised, admitted to intensive care on one side of the table. On the other side of the table, based on these very small numbers of cases that have been reported, distributed by age, we were able to see the risks that people faced as a theoretical consequence of, of receiving a first dose of this vaccine. All the way down to 30, it was plainly obvious, even with very low rates of COVID occurring, as we're seeing at the moment, that there was a very clear benefit to receiving the vaccine. In other words, people who uh, took a dose of vaccine on a particular day would be reducing their risks of of dying, of getting seriously ill, of getting blood clots. And so there was really no uh, sense in advising those people to do anything other than to roll their sleeve up and get vaccinated. However, once you got down below the age of 30, that risk-benefit balance began to look a bit borderline. Now, there's a quite a high level of uncertainty because the numbers of cases in that age group that have occurred in this country are very, very few. I mean, I think there are only about three cases. But the number of vaccine doses given to people in that age group are also quite low as well, which is why that produces this higher rate. So uh, the decision we took was based on the fact that we felt that no one should be put in a position of potentially taking an individual risk-benefit balance decision that is not favourable in order to sustain the vaccine program and the prevention of COVID in the context of us having alternative vaccines that those people could receive that, at least on the evidence we have at the moment, would not involve that slightly borderline judgment. What about other groups? So, for example, people who, uh, for various medical reasons, might be at high risk of blood clots, but also at a high risk from COVID. That that feels like a, a more complex scenario. What's the advice on, on that? Should they be worried about being offered the AstraZeneca vaccine? So at the moment, the advice is clear that we only really feel that people should avoid the vaccine if they've actually had one of these thrombosis with thrombocytopenia reactions 
to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So obviously, if you've got one of these cases, they should not receive another dose of the vaccine. Actually, we've not seen any cases after the second dose, but nevertheless, that seems like a logical precaution to take. But of course, that actually only involves less than 100 people at this point in time. The only other group that we think need to be careful are people who've had another very rare but similar kind of thrombosis called heparin-induced thrombosis, which seems to have the same sort of mechanism. So there are a very small number of people out there who've had clotting problems who need to avoid this particular vaccine. The very large number of people who've had other kinds of thromboses, there's no evidence at all that they are at enhanced risk of this particular side effect. What is it about the AstraZeneca jab that could be causing this blood clotting problem? And what does it mean for other vaccines, especially those that maybe are using a, a similar technology? There are a lot of theories about this flying around and not very much evidence. Uh, I think the honest answer to your question is that we haven't got the slightest idea why this is happening. We don't know whether it's a vaccine-specific thing that is just relative to AstraZeneca or whether it's a platform thing that might be more generalizable to other vaccines of a similar design using adenoviral vectors, whether it might be caused by the S protein that is uh, common to all of the vaccines that are currently being used and in development. After all, the virus very commonly causes thrombosis, and obviously the virus contains the spike protein. If it is a spike protein problem, differences between the way that the spike protein has been coded for and generated in these vaccines might result in the differences we seem to be seeing, for example, between AstraZeneca and Pfizer, both of which code for S protein. So there are lots of possible reasons, and we urgently need to find out which ones are real and which ones of them are just uh, wrong theories. Adam, I'm a woman in my mid-30s, I'm 35, and I have no particular health concerns. Now, obviously, I'm not covered by the JCVI's new recommendation about having the Oxford AstraZeneca jab. Now, I'm not worried about taking this vaccine, I will definitely take it if I'm offered it. But I can imagine that some people in my position might be a bit, little bit worried if they're just a little bit older than 30. Should they be concerned? I think my judgment personally, and I think this concurs with JCVI's judgment, is that you would be making a very illogical decision if you were offered the vaccine and you decided not to receive it. Because I think by doing that, you would be increasing your risk of ending up in hospital, increasing your risk of ending up in intensive care, and actually increasing your risk of getting blood clots and dying. So the logical decision, based on the data that we've got at the moment, for a healthy woman in her mid-30s would be to receive the vaccine as and when and as soon as it gets offered. Finally, what's your advice to anyone who's had the AstraZeneca vaccine or indeed any of the COVID-19 vaccines and begins to feel unwell? The first bit of advice is don't panic if it's particularly if it's in the first day or two after you've had the dose because that happens to almost everyone. It certainly happened to me after I had my dose So early onset uh, headaches, flu-like illnesses, fevers, and generally feeling shoddy for the first 24 to 48 hours are par for the course and are nothing to do with blood clots. The cases that we've seen reported, the earliest onset was around four days after the vaccine, 
the latest were in the range of two to three weeks. And if you're feeling ill and unwell a month or two after your vaccine, that's very, very, very unlikely to be anything to do with the vaccine. But in that time window, if you start to feel seriously unwell with the symptoms that were listed by June rain on Thursday, they included headaches, blurred vision, um, chest pain, abdominal pain, or anything really out of the ordinary that seems like uh, it could be something serious to you, you should get medical attention. This is only going to happen to one in a million people. And we, we don't want everyone who's got the slightest symptoms to panic. But they should seek medical attention if they've got concerns in that time period, because there is effective diagnosis and treatment available. And we don't want anyone else who suffers this complication to get unnecessarily ill or even to run the risk of dying of it. So do take prompt action, but bear in mind that immediately after a vaccine dose, you're quite likely to feel unwell and not your normal self for 24 up to 48 hours. And that should nothing to worry about. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. It's been very uh, interesting having you on and very helpful. Thanks, Nicola. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Sue Pavard and Adam Finn. If you have any questions on the science behind the pandemic, do email them in to us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back on Thursday. Stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.